Well, it's good to be here this morning. It is the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10, and not only are we commanded to gather in the house of God, that is the place designated, wherever that is, in this local area where Christians, that's the called out church, gather to meet in the name of the Lord. And in His name, Colossians 3 and 17 means that we are going to effectively carry out whatever it is that is the will of God, the New Testament, concerning our worship here at this place. If you are our guest today and you're not a member of the Church of Christ, we certainly want to say thank you for coming. We hope the things that are spoken today will uplift you spiritually, that we'll all be brought closer together to God in Christ and that our plea will be one that's based distinctly upon biblical precedent. We'll not make mention or argue a case of salvation unless we point people to the book of all books. Our plea is that together we return to the Bible and the Bible alone and that we stand on Scripture in the name of Christ and that we speak where the Bible speaks and we remain silent where the Bible is silent, 1 Peter chapter 4. We agree today, hopefully, that God's Word is in fact the inspired truth. And it is the only written revelation, it is the only way today in which God communicates specifically to man. And by inspired literature, we have reference to the 39 books of the old and 27 books in the new. From Genesis to Malachi and from Matthew to Revelation, God's inspired revelation to man. And thus, in the churches of Christ, Romans 16, 16, our appeal is to go back to the Scripture, to cast away the traditions of men, Matthew 15, 7 through 9, and to stand on the platform and foundation of truth and righteousness. And we begin today by asking a question, a very serious question, that every individual ought to, within their own mind, answer. Do you have peace of mind? Sometimes you'll watch commercials, maybe an all-state commercial or maybe even a funeral home. And they will use that phrase to make people think concerning security and safety and sober things in life. And there's nothing wrong with that. All-state, do you have peace of mind? But really, that's not the peace of mind that I'm talking about today. I'm talking about wading out through the spiritual waters much deeper. I'm asking you as an evangelist, that's my job, is to stir our minds up, to do the work of an evangelist, 2 Timothy 4, 5, to cause us from the word of God to think soberly concerning the salvation that the good brother read about from Titus 2 and 11 that hath appeared unto how many? All men. He tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2 and 9. And so we lift up our voice this morning, cry aloud and spare not, and lift up thy voice like a trumpet, Isaiah 58 and 1, to sound out the call that is larger than us all, the gospel call. So we're talking about a peace of mind that Paul would describe in Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 7 and following, the peace of God that surpasseth all understanding, that shall keep and guard your hearts in Christ Jesus. 
So I ask you again, do you have peace of mind? Isaiah 57, 20 and 21 is a passage that really sends shivers up my spine to think about it. The Bible says that the wicked, they have no rest. They cast up mire and dirt in their waters and there is no peace that the wicked has, Isaiah says. No peace. Now, they cry peace, peace at times when there is no peace. What is peace of mind? Well, maybe to the farmer, it's getting out there on the side of, of, of the hillside and looking over his flock of, uh, of sheep or, or his herd of cattle. We don't have many sheep where I'm from, mainly cattle. Maybe see a growing crop and there is a certain there is a certain peace. There is a certain calming effect to see those things. Maybe to a mother, it's holding her newborn child in her arms and the sweet, gentle peace that comes over her. We could all see and think in our minds illustrations or pictures of peace. But I'm not talking about those this morning, as sweet as they all may be. I'm asking you, do you have spiritual peace in your heart to God in Christ Jesus. Now we're talking about something that's so personal, it's going to cause a few of you to squirm in your mind. That's okay. Bible preaching is not meant to, to be like Dr. Pepper or candy. A quick little rush and then just fade away. Gospel preaching and teaching is designed to stir your souls towards truth. So it's natural then that your heart, which we've said before here in a previous meeting, the conscience, the intellect, the fortitude, the reasoning, the emotion, all of those aspects should be stirred toward God. Your heart should be quickened by the Spirit through the Word of God, Ephesians 6 and 17, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. You should be stirred to move towards God. That's what preaching is designed to do. God has words that have meaning. Inspired words, if rightly divided, 2 Timothy 2.15, are preached effectively, 2 Timothy 4 and 2, they should take us all where we need to go. The non-Christian should go to the cross and be saved in Christ Jesus this morning. The Christian is struggling should return and come back home to the cross and be restored, Galatians 6 and 1. The man, the woman that's living faithfully but that's grown discouraged recently for this reason or another, to cling to the cross. In other words, preaching affects all of us. There is nobody here this morning that does not need gospel preaching, including the preacher. Every one of us stand in need of encouragement, of information, motivation, exhortation. Do you have a peace of mind? There's going to come a time. We're not wanting to scare people or use emotional tactics. I don't believe in that. But I do believe in being fair to the brevity of life, the scriptural point that James would emphasize, that Hebrews 9 and 27 verifies, that as we move closer to the end of life, and we don't know how long that's going to be because people die young all the time. If you don't have a peace of mind that Paul describes in Philippians 4, that is to guard our hearts and minds. What are you going to do 
when the storm of judgment comes, what will your answer be, friend? So do you have a peace of mind? I suppose after studying the Bible for many, many years, I would say the wealthiest people that I've ever met, the wealthiest person is the one that has a peace of mind secure in Christ Jesus. If we were to step back and look at the old prophets in the Old Testament, both major and minor, if we could see what the prophets saw it might be that we would be stirred to run to the cross this morning. The prophets knew that Micah chapter 5 verse 2, there would be a babe in Bethlehem born. The prophets knew Isaiah 7 and 14. The prophet declared in that text that there would be born of a virgin. Matthew 1 and 21 says they shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. The prophets knew and the Bible testifies that the offering of sin would be the Passover lamb. Do you know it is the case that in Exodus 12 in verse 46 that not one bone, not one bone of the Passover lamb could be broken. Not one. Now, as we travel to John, the 19th chapter, where our lesson will be this morning, one of the seven cries that we are made aware of in inspired text that Jesus uttered from his lips is recorded in the 30th verse of the 19th chapter of John. Jesus said, it is finished. We need to know what it means, young people, when Jesus said, it is finished. It's not merely that his death was Impending. It's not only that his death was imminent, it's much deeper than that. It is finished. Jesus had to fulfill all aspects of the old law, which Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 17, I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He was going to fulfill every prophecy. He was going to go through and, and each detailed point would be masterfully orchestrated by the divine wisdom of the Holy Father and the Spirit who spoke through and by the prophets would have all things executed and culminating in absolute perfection in Christ Jesus. There was not one mark in Christ that was not satisfied to the old law. So here we are in John the 19th chapter and it talks about two particular prophecies. Now you understand there's approximately 300. We're only speaking of two at this point in John the 19th chapter. How many stars would have to quote line up in perfection for 300 prophecies to all be satisfied in one? Well, it takes more than the stars lining up. It takes the creator who spoke the world into existence, including the stars, to have such powerful, to have such absolute power. And here we are in John the 19th chapter, yet this power is perfectly harnessed. One of the great proofs, one of the great proofs of our Savior's righteousness is though he yet had access to all power, he harnessed it completely in the form of meekness. 
The Bible says he counted it not robbery to be equal with God, but in full absolute harnessing of that power, he chose not to access that power for the benefit of us all. And he would utter the words, it is finished. What's finished, Jesus? Elaborate upon it, John. What is finished? Well, in part, point one is prophecies were fulfilled. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46, not one bone shall be broken from the Passover lamb. In 1 Corinthians 5 and 7, Pauline authorship here would declare unto us of the Spirit that Christ is our Passover. Now, young people in the Old Testament, I'm sure you know this, but just to make sure, in the Old Testament, the blood had to be on the lintel, on the mantle, on the door, on the post. And when, when pass over the home, if there was blood, then they would be spared the firstborn. Here we are in Christ. You cannot have peace of mind unless you understand when Jesus said it, it is finished, there is now no longer any need. There is of no necessity of any continuation of all of the Old Testament blood sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus did at one time for all what the entire altar of the Old Testament and all of the blood shed upon it could not do in actuality in the entire time in which it existed. It was simply a typical arrangement. Hebrews 10 and 4, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Verse 1 said that the comers thereunto can now be made perfect. How? Through that which was greater than the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus is better. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. He hath obtained a more excellent ministry upon which is established better promises because he is the mediator of a better covenant. It is finished. What's finished? According the gospel according to John, what is finished? Well, when Jesus died, they came unto him, the text says. But they break not his legs, which was normal and customary under the crucifix of the Roman. Uh, they would break the legs. But when they came to Jesus, they break not his legs. Yet Exodus 12, 46 says the Passover, not one bone was broken. We need to understand when we pray concerning a broken body at the table. It is true that Jesus' body was broken in the sense that a spear opened up the side of Jesus. But we also need to understand there was no bone broken. That was a prophecy. But there is another scripture, the Bible says. There is another scripture here that John alludes to concerning from Zechariah, the 12th chapter, that they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Revelation 1-7 talks about the piercing of the Almighty. But it is that the Father, according to Zechariah chapter 12, that he would look upon one in great mourning as his only son being pierced. Folks, the Father's heart was undoubtedly broken at that moment in time, so much so that Jesus said this upon the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father cannot look upon sin. Do you understand that in that moment of time, Jesus had to take upon all sins of all time upon his shoulders alone. Nobody was there to assist him, not his own mother, not the apostles. They might have stood at a distance or even his mother who stood nearby, but she could not do for her son what had to be accomplished in that hour. And there is no one today 
that can give you peace of mind other than Christ. That's what has to be driven home to people today. Acts 4 and 12, there is no other name. There is no other name. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled it. It is finished. Finished what? Finished the fulfilling of the old law, Matthew 5, 17, which Jesus promised to do. So therefore, if he's the one that fulfilled it, he's the one that we look to. The Hebrew writer says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. People today are confused. I'll tell you what it is. It's the master liar. That's Satan. Revelation 12, 9. John 8, 44. Many other passages. He's Satan. He's, he's a liar. He's a dragon. He's a serpent. He's Satan. What he does is shade the truth and twist the truth just enough to get you to believe something that's close to the truth but not the truth. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth, John 8 and 32, and the truth shall set you free. Anything less than the truth is not the whole truth. And it takes the whole truth to set man free. So we live in an age, in this culture in which we live, it's almost polytheism. We've got preachers. We've got, quote, I hate to use the word, clergy, what they call it. It's not a Bible. They, we've got all kinds of people in religion saying that it doesn't matter what God you serve as long as you, you do what you think is right in your heart. The problem is, then you become your own God. You're becoming your own God. You think, well, if you believe it, that's good enough as long as you believe it right. You're making yourself out to be your own God. Coming to Christ means actually we submit ourselves to Him and all the things that we have heard and been taught in the world, we have to be willing to denounce those things if they're not in harmony with the Word of God. And I think that point by itself will separate many, many people on the Day of Judgment. Those that believe that as long as you are doing what you can and you're doing what you think is right, versus those that understand we have to submit to the will of God. Well, here we are. It is finished. What did he mean? Well, yes, the Old Testament prophets and prophecies were fulfilled in Christ. But it is finished also had reference to, as we just spoke, there was now no need of all of the Old Testament altars and continuation of the blood sacrifices because now in Christ, now in Christ, Complete salvation would be given to all the world, those who would come to him in faith and obedience. Our good brother read earlier, listen to this phrase again, the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation unto all men. You know, there's a lot of people today who believe, it's Calvinism, they believe that Christ only died for those individuals that he has already chosen to be saved before they were born. That's not true. Titus 2.11 and Hebrews 2 and 9 and 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, we could give a long list of passages that teach this particular point that Christ died for all. This is very important to understand, brethren. That's why the Great Commission goes to everybody whether it be here in Tennessee or out in the west here in the states or whether it be up in the upper east. 
Why is this important? Because if men don't understand that Christ died for all, many believe they're not valuable enough to be saved. You don't know how many people I've set at the bedside, somebody who was older, and they understood the gospel, they believed that you ought to be baptized or have to be baptized to be saved, but they believed there was something in their past that they could not be forgiven for. They would not even tell me what it was. Some were so embarrassed of it. They said, I just don't believe God forgive me. Here's where they're making their mistake. Maybe somebody here fits that same category today. You fail to understand that when Jesus said it is finished, that's exactly what he meant. Your sin is not greater than the death of Christ. Your sin is not your sin is not more powerful than the grace of God who by his divine favor allowed Christ to come and to die as a ransom for all. Now, your sin has separated you from Christ, or from God the Father, excuse me, and only through Christ can you be reconciled. Your sin is hated by God. Your sin, like my sin, all sin is horrible. But to think that there is something that we have done that would prevent us from coming to Christ really is an impeachment and a slap in the face to the divine grace of God, to the blood of Jesus, and to the efficacy of his divine sacrifice. So don't think for a minute that there's something lingering in the closet in the past that should prevent you from coming to God. That's a devil's lie that's been told, that's been perpetuated. And actually, let me go one step further. Here's what you need to think about if, if this shoe fits you. By you not coming to God in Christ, you're setting a poor example for your children and grandchildren. You're telling them that you can do something to the point that there is no hope left. What if they follow in your footsteps? What if they walk in that same mindset and trajectory? What if they grow old and never come to God because they say, well, you know, Grandpa, Grandpa couldn't be forgiven. Maybe I've done something that I can't be forgiven. The only time in Scripture that I'm aware of and we don't have time to get into this today. We covered this over at holiday at last year, I remember. When Jesus said concerning blasphemy of the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven this life and life to come. That was in that generation at that time. Those that were denying the power of the miracles and they were attributing Christ's power to Beelzebub and those people in that limited time at that point were told that. That's not for us today. There's not a sin you could commit today, right now, that you cannot be forgiven for. And if there is a sin that you can commit that you cannot be forgiven for, then we need to figure out what that is and let people know. Because anybody who's committed it would be wasting their time by doing anything religious. Don't believe a devil's lie. When Jesus said it is finished, the greatest plan, the greatest scheme... By scheme, we mean no negativity. It's an old word. We mean the beauty of a divine plot that had been invoked before the foundations of the world to masterfully bring man what he needed, not what he wanted. And man needs a Savior. That's why this world is so broken. And it's not going to get any better. People wonder why there's so much drug addiction, so much alcoholism, so much pregnancy and, and wed, out of wedlock and so many people living together and homosexuality. Why are all these things rampant? Folks, they've always been rampant in the world. 1 John 5 and 19. It was that way when I was preaching 20 years ago. 
What we have to realize is, is that all men sin and fall short of the glory of God. It is our job to take the good news, the gospel, to a people who are already condemned in sin, that's those in the world, and teach and share with them the good news of a Savior who can turn their life around spiritually and can give them hope when right now they live in hopelessness. Can make them, can make them free and forgiven when at this time they're under the vice of addiction and sin. When Jesus said it is finished, he also had undoubtedly an understanding of a great joy. Think about the joy of salvation. We learned in class this morning in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, rejoice evermore. Paul said, rejoice the Lord, and again I say rejoice. Christians should be the most joyful people because we stand on great confidence of the salvation that Jesus provides us. Now when I say confidence, that's exactly what I mean. Not in yourself. Confidence in Christ. Do you have full assurance of salvation in Christ? Do you believe because of what he has already done for you that you can have access to full and free, absolute salvation? I really feel sorry for folk. One guy said, well, I don't know whether I'm saved or not saved. Salvation should not be a rolling of the dice. Y'all know gambling's wrong. You don't roll the guy dice on salvation. Someone said, well, I didn't know it was wrong. Well, yeah, it is. Now you know. So you don't roll the dice on salvation. You stand upon the word of God and by faith, when you submit your will to the divine will of God, and you come and receive the salvation that Jesus said was finished at the cross, then undoubtedly you can be a Christian. By the way, as we proceed with the lesson, who is a Christian? Have you ever pondered that question specifically? Who is a Christian? Now the name Christian is only found three times in our New Testaments. That's all, three times. Acts 11, 26, Acts 26, 28, 1 Peter 4 and 16. Three times in the New Testament. Now we know from reading Isaiah 62, 1 and 2, that the persecutors did not give us our name. Our name was given to us by the mouth of God. It was a prophecy. A Christian, one that belongs to Jesus. Now hear, me, hear this. As we sound the trumpet out today, hear this. A Christian is one who belongs to Jesus. Do you belong to him to receive the words, it is finished? Or do you stand at a distance to the cross? Every person here before they leave this morning. I chose salvation this morning because normally on Sunday morning you have, you know, if you have visitors, it's going to be Sunday morning. Sunday night through Wednesday night, we're going to talk more to the church. But, but here we are and before everyone leaves today to go to the, the dinner or to go back home, do you have peace of mind? Do you really feel confident concerning your salvation? Let me ask you a question. If the doctor looks you in the eye and tells you that you've got terminal cancer or, 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 or something happens this year, whatever it is, 
Do you feel right now, and by feel, I don't mean just feel what your gut says. I mean according to Scripture. Do you have confidence in your salvation? That's why we have gospel meetings. To remind us all that there's a day and an hour in which we're going to leave and depart this earth. Be buried beneath the clay, uh, the sod of, of this ground. And our soul that's ever living, that does not die. I mean, it lives one way or the other. Your soul cannot be extinguished. People have to understand that. Your soul, if you take your own life, your soul doesn't die. You still live. You just killed the body. But the soul lives. The soul is going to live somewhere or another. It's going to either live in the, in the Gehenna hell eventually or it's going to live in the heavenly realm. There's no other place the soul to live eternally, permanently. So if, if you can't kill the soul, then wouldn't it make sense to surrender your soul to Christ so that you could live eternally with Him someday in the splendors of heaven, having all of your sins forgiven? I think some people either think it's too good to be true or they don't have the conviction that the entire Scripture and the entire scheme of redemption is real. Some people may believe that the judgment and all of these thoughts are just fanciful imaginations of a preacher or, or an institution that's held on to these thoughts to hold control over people. Such is not the case. I can assure you there's no one probably more cynical than myself. That's why I studied, even at a very young age, every prophecy I could find in the Old Testament but every one of them are fulfilled in Christ. Every last one of them. Well, how do you take all of those prophecies being fulfilled? How do you take an empty tomb, all the evidence pointing to the resurrection of Christ, how do you have all of this evidence and yet deny it? It would take more faith. In that sense, it would take harder work being an atheist then it would be a believer in Christ because there's no evidence for atheism. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. But many men don't want a standard. They deny God because they don't want to have to change. They don't want to have to live for Christ and give up the things of this world like drinking and dancing and gambling and, and lying and cheating and, and, and sexual infidelity. They want, they want to play in all of those fields. But be it known today... When Jesus said it is finished, that was not a license for a Christian to live in sin. When you come to Christ, you have to first deny yourself. You have to be willing to rid your heart of all of the world and of all the things in the world, of which John says any man that loved the world, the love of the Father, is not in him. For the world passed away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So we must remove the world. And to come to Christ, it's more than just someone said, well, just shut, close your eyes and say a prayer. The Bible doesn't teach that. I'd like to know where these people find these things at. Most of what's being spewed in the name of religion is false because the devil wants to keep people where they are. And the only way a man can be freed is to be free indeed in Christ. Jesus said, here's what Jesus actually said, young people. If ye believe that I am he, otherwise what? 
you will die in your sins. That is, there must be a belief. Where does belief, where does faith come from? The Word of God. What does the Word of God do? It brings testimony to us. Not somebody standing up in church testifying. We don't do that. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Not here. We don't need to stand up and tell everybody what they think about religion. That'd be a mess. The testimony from the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 3, 5, is truth. So we glean truth from what the Scripture says, not what people say about the Scripture. What does the Scripture actually teach? Jesus said, unless you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins. That is truth. Now you, that means you cannot have peace of mind, right, when you're in your sins. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you don't have peace of mind because you're still in your sins. What does it mean to believe that I am He? It means you believe that he was the one prophesied of the Old Testament as the anointed Savior, the Messiah, the Master. It means you believe that he was born of a virgin, he was born in Bethlehem, that he was born to save the world, not to condemn it while we were already condemned in sin. That he was in fact the Son of God, Matthew 27, 54. Jesus said that we must repent or perish. Repentance is the most difficult portion of salvation. Repentance means that we make a change. A complete life direction. Now, many people, you know, we've got to be careful here. Sometimes we have young ones coming that may be too young. Until you understand what it means to repent and have something to repent for, you need to be cautious. That's why we have so many people being baptized a second time. Repentance means you're going to be giving up the things that are wrong. That may be, to some of you, pornography, it's got to go. One guy said, well, yeah, but my wife said, that's okay. No, your wife can't give you permission to sin. Pornography is a sin. It's wrong. And if it's a part of your life, you're separated from God. And somebody ought to say amen. It's ruining our homes. Alcohol, wrong. So well, what about medicine? I'm not talking about medicine. I'm talking about you guys at the lake down in them six-packs. Get rid of it. It'll destroy your home. Get rid of the vulgar speech. Get rid of the nasty talk. Get rid of all of the... We have to rid ourselves of that. Repentance is hard because repentance is the place in where I say, all right, what and how am I going to rid myself of these things? God will help you. But you have to want it and you have to want it bad. Salvation does not come easy. Salvation comes to those who desire it. Believing in Jesus and repenting of sin, what else? The mouth is willing to speak what the heart has already declared. That Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, Acts 8 and 37. That scripture is good. That's another story for another day. That's a good scripture. Contrary to what many of my liberal brethren think. Acts 8 and 37, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And then you're willing to be baptized. And I've always said this, if you're still arguing about baptism, you have not repented. Thank you. Because the Bible says concerning John the Baptist, they were rejecting baptism. And the Bible says they were rejecting the counsel of God. If Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, who are we to argue against Christ? Baptism is not the difficult part of salvation. 
Baptism, if this brother baptizes me, he's doing the work anyways. I'm just submitting to it. The hard part, the difficult part, is in repentance. There, there is the chamber that we need to preach more about. Baptism, though, is so great that if you've never been baptized for the remission of your sins, I can't imagine what would hold you back. Some of y'all said, well, I, I can't wait to get my Ph.D., you're, oh, post hole digger? Now go on and get it if you want to. But, the, but my point is, that, that's not the best day of your life anyways. So what about me getting married? That's going to that's gonna be great. Yeah, until the honeymoon's over. See, we can give all these great things in life. But if you've never obeyed the gospel, you don't have peace of mind. You just think you do. You don't have security in Christ. You don't have a good example for your children and grandchildren. Really, you don't have anything. But when you come to Christ, God the Father will take you in because of the cross and He will love you. He will forgive you. He will hold you up. He will show unto you great favor and grace because of Jesus. Who said in John 19 and 30, it is finished. What is finished? All the prophecies of the old time were fulfilled, Matthew 5 and 17, including not one bone of His would be broken including they would look upon him who was pierced, Revelation 1, 7, Zechariah 12 and 10, and countless other prophecies at the same time being fulfilled. What is finished? The fact that all the Old Testament sacrifices, typical in arrangement, all now rendered unnecessary because the great mediator Christ Jesus has arrived upon the scene and has given his life a ransom for all. Ye who are poor may be rich because he who was rich made himself poor. Now the Bible says that he hath been exalted. Jesus Christ did not stay on the cross and we should not put him there and keep him there in our preaching. Jesus Christ did not stay on the cross. He stayed long enough to redeem you of your sins. He was placed into a borrowed tomb of Joseph Arimathea where never a body had been laid before. And when the sweet ladies in Matthew 28 came early at the break of dawn, he was not in the tomb. An empty tomb is the devil's greatest nightmare. Because it sounds forth victory, triumph, and absolute power to every Christ-centered, home, God-fearing person that's ever lived. If you come into Christ, Christ will make you free. And in the last day, on the resurrection morning, John 5, 28 and 29, marvel not, don't be surprised. Everybody in their graves shall come forth. Now, on that day, there's going to be two classes of people, Brother Scoggins. Those that have peace of mind, Philippians 4 and 7. And those that have no peace, Isaiah 57, 20 and 21. John said, marvel not that all that are in their graves shall come forth. They that have done good in the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil in the resurrection of damnation. When Jesus told Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus came forth. Jesus himself conquered Hades and Rim the devil, all the dark lies of the world, and came out of the grave, defeating sin on our behalf. Don't you think that same Jesus has the power in the last day to call out all the men and women who have died in faith over the span of time to come forth out of their graves and to have their new resurrected body given unto them, which 1 Corinthians 15 says is one of incorruptibility. To go into the day of judgment and on to the heavenly realm 
and live forever with the saints upon high. Do you have peace of mind? I hope you do today. Peace of mind. A peace that surpasses all understanding. If you want to come to Christ, the elders here are ready to talk to you, Brother Scoggins as well. The song leader is making his way up. I want you to think about it as we begin to sing this invitation. Do you have peace with God as we stand and as we sing?